Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. On today's episode, Sean and I talk to writer and journalist Christopher Scott McNeil about growing up and teaching literature in the American South, working in coffee in Sacramento, and how these experiences, along with a brief detour via the FBI, brought him to journalism. Well, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on. So for the audience at home and for you, Sean, um, I know Chris through coffee, which was sort of my first career, I guess I would say. So the Chris, the writer and journalist is a side that I am less familiar with and um, <laughs> sort of only know tangentially. Um, so what is your history there? Well, writing is probably one of the first creative outlets I really became familiar with. I grew up very, very poor, uh, like well below the the federal poverty line. And so having access to not only the means to be creative, but also the, um, the accessibility that comes with more affluence, uh, having people in your circle that you can be inspired by who can show you what the world has to offer wasn't necessarily something that I had access to but my mom uh, my mom was a single mother she was a waitress you know she worked third shift and barely got to see me and my little brother but something that she was very proud of was that she was a published poet and that at the time, that didn't really have a firm impact on me, but it still let me know that that was possible, that you could express yourself and that you could uh, present yourself to whomever you chose to through the written medium. And it's something that stuck with me for a long, long time. I would have college-ruled notebooks that I would just fill with stories of espionage and dragons and all these things that I had no idea what they were about, but it was, but it was, it was fun. It was great. And, um, especially as I got into adolescence and all of the awkwardness that comes in with that, uh, without having friends, without having a social circle and being in this really impoverished, uh, family and also very impoverished part of the world. I grew up in rural Oklahoma, you know, unless you wanted to, go get wasted in somebody's farm or something like that. Like that was kind of all I had for options as far as, you know, some kind of outlet. And so I just started writing and writing and writing. Um, but it was a little bit difficult because I hated reading. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's really interesting because I later became an English teacher, but I, I hated reading because I had difficulties with reading and it kind of comes back to like that financial aspect of not being able to expand myself or necessarily get the assistance that I needed in order to um, kind of find my passion and get the, get the help that I needed to further my pursuits. But that's definitely, that's definitely the catalyst was uh, for writing. Right. Sort of this quite literal escape. Um, in a lot of ways, but also just, just something to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Both for sure. Yeah. It It's interesting to me. Um, cause that's a reoccurring theme. The, 
the idea that a lot of people who seem to go into the arts had um, some sort of very awkward adolescence. I, you know, everybody does to some extent, but those of us who were particularly challenged in that um, department tend to lean towards more creative pursuits. It's always felt like um, for, for whatever reason, maybe just because we are, you know, that allows us to be inner focused or because it is that escapism or, or whatever. Sean, did you feel the same way? Like how was your adolescence? Mm, yes. Because <laughs> I was a queer before I knew I was a queer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of, <laughs> my favorite is in middle school. <laughs> Moms would come up to my mom and how is he raising a gay son? <laughs> my mom was like, Did you, are you gay? I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> So it was everyone took one look and they're like, oh, this one. Mm." Yeah. So (laughs) I was blithely unaware and then I became aware. And then, yes, I was not well adjusted for a long time. (sighs) I also feel like the arts are, because the arts community is comprised of so many people who may have been out of place in their adolescence, I feel like the arts community is a lot more accepting or maybe even will go out of its way to be accepting of people who may not fit, you know, the status quo. And so it's very easy for people to find refuge in that as well. Even if, like in my instance, I didn't necessarily have an arts community to reach out to, but at the same time, whenever I was able to join a larger arts community, it was there ready and accepting for me, however I was and whoever I was. Right, and there's this really beautiful thing built into it that, um, y- you know, it it allow every every artist who, in whatever their medium is, they show or they they publish or or they share, you have that moment where s- suddenly you are important, right? And and what you're saying is important, and I feel like that really draws a lot of us to it as well, right? Like, absolutely. For some people, it it's the the first or only place that that they get that feeling that like my ideas are valid and, and that is um, super intoxicating in a lot of ways, but it, it's also like super important for, for that development too. Yeah, absolutely. Validation is hugely important to people in general. And I don't think it gets more concrete than the vulnerability of creating art and putting it out in the world and have it be received by people with some kind of positive element to go with it. So how did you end up then headed into teaching? When I graduated, I so I went to high school in Oklahoma, um, and I moved to Mississippi shortly thereafter to uh, be with my then-girlfriend, who's now my wife. And I I struggled with the idea of college. Uh, once again, my, my circle of the people who were around me were truckers and waitresses and drug dealers and, you know, people who necessarily weren't the kinds of people who, who were socially seen as being very, very successful. And I loved writing. I eventually learned to enjoy reading as well. And thank John Steinbeck for that. Of Mice and Men was like the first book that I just couldn't put down. And I started thinking like, oh, well, I guess I should just go to college. I was working as a fast food cook at the time, and I knew I didn't want to do that for forever. And I was like, well, what are the options for me? 
and so I looked at the local community college. I looked at what they had to offer. And I toyed around with the idea of being a teacher for some time, mostly because I thoroughly enjoyed English as a subject. I really excelled at writing essays and analysis of pieces. And I finally just decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do it, uh, which was came as a big surprise to a lot of my family, mostly because there's a lot of dangers that come with being a teacher, especially in the South. Uh, it was I was in northern Mississippi at the time, which is in really close proximity to Memphis, which has you know, a history of being one of the top three most dangerous cities in the country for several years running. And there's just this idea that by being a teacher, I was putting my life at risk. I wasn't going to make a lot of money. And there's all these kind of negative things that are associated with it. But I'd kind of made a history for myself of being a very resilient person, growing up super, super poor and still finding success uh, in school and, you know, not wind up going down the rabbit hole that so many other people in my situation would have by, you know, getting involved in drugs, getting involved in uh, some less than reputable enterprises. And so none of my family had went to college and I was like, you know, what? I could do this. I can do this, but what am I going to do? And I figured that the education system isn't going anywhere. And it's at least something that where I can continue pursuing a passion. And it was great. I went to community college, eventually went to the University of Mississippi, got my bachelor's, uh, wound up getting like student teacher of the year award and as uh, wound up graduating summa cum laude and went to teach uh, middle school uh, English and special education for a couple of years. And it was tough. It was really, really tough. Right. And that was still in Mississippi, right? Yeah, it was in Mississippi, which is... Uh, one of the least educated states in the country. You know, it's constantly battling with another Midwestern state for 50th place. And it was, it was not what I had hoped. Um, it was very, very disconnected from the artistic world that I loved and enjoyed whenever I was in school. But the connections that I made with students and seeing students get excited about a book, whether it was the outsiders or uh, something I had them read independently was just wonderful. It's one of the best things that I think comes with the territory of being a teacher is seeing somebody accept this new information and make it their own and get genuinely excited about it. And because of the special education component of my work, I was also able to really work with students who were like high functioning ADD and ADHD who were able to think outside the box and approach this stuff in a very, very different and unique way that wound up allowing me to at least facilitate their own love for the artistic world of the English language, which in my naivete was like one of the things that made me want to become a teacher. You know, I wanted to give these students, you know, 13, 14 year olds in this, the most awkward part of their lives, something to get excited about you know, become a part of this, you know, this big artistic world, you know, this English language is ultimately a very, very limited tool that is a very constricting medium, but at the same time, it's capable of so much beauty. And seeing like a 13 year old grasp that, it's fantastic. Especially, yeah. And and I imagine, especially if they are, um, you know, if they share a background with you. So, 
So what happened after that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so teaching has a lot of red tape. Without going into too much detail, I was asked to do a lot of things that I ethically didn't agree with. And so I was also in a very, very constricted part of the world, whether it's it's probably not indicative of Mississippi as a whole or uh, the Mid-South region as a whole, but um, the idea of progress where I was just was non-existent. Um, you fit a, you had to fit a certain mold or you were relegated to the margins. And that wasn't something that I, I thought was okay. And so I took stock of my options and figured out what I could do about it. And my wife and I just decided to move out to California. We decided to put more focus on what made us happy. And after visiting California, I have some family here, uh, she had never seen the Pacific Ocean before, and so we flew out to Southern California, took Highway 1, came into Sacramento, stayed a couple weeks, and kind of fell in love not only with the area, but also the people, even the people we didn't interact with, like going to a Walmart and seeing a same-sex couple in hijabs holding hands. Like it was, it was like a really weird culture shock, and it was very, very freeing at the same time, and so we felt as though this would be a great place for us to expand our horizons, artistically especially. Um, she was a budding photographer. I wanted to focus more on my writing. I had ideas for novels and all kinds of stuff. And we felt as though the freedom of thought that came with getting outside of a very, very conservative bubble of, uh, of Southern life would be the perfect opportunity for that. So we came to Sacramento. I started working in the food service industry, eventually started working in the specialty coffee industry with Mason and started devoting more and more time to my creative pursuits. It's really nice to hear you um, be so appreciative of Sacramento. <laughs> as, as a Bay Area born Californian, I tend to be so incredibly disparaging about Sacramento, honestly. Um, but it keeps, I'm still here, and it keeps growing on me, unfortunately, so. You know, I insist that Sacramento, for all of its many, many, many faults, is a really weirdly magical place. You know, it, it is far more magical than it has any business being. I agree. City of Sacramento, please be our sponsor. <laughs> Yeah, Sacramento 365 still a thing. Like, yeah, there's got to be somebody. It is really interesting to me, like, because we last week we talked to um, Alamode, who was a she's originally from Brooklyn, but she had similar things to say about like you know Sacramento is this weird place, but it is there's a lot more here than it gets credit for. You know, it, it it we exist in the shadow of the Bay Area, and all of my art connections are in the Bay Area, and they're like, why are you still out in SAC? And it's like, well, I can afford rent, but also, <laughs> like, you know, there are some good things here. There are a lot of good things here. Yeah, and uh, I feel like the people who go out of their way to find it are, are lucky. I kind of like that it's, you know, it is in the shadow of the Bay Area, and that there is not so much out there in the public eye, because it makes it so that it isn't something that can get ruined by people on the outside. People who, especially considering Central Valley and the proximity to, uh, you know, some not so progressive parts of the country, it makes it so that uh, people who do kind of fall on the margins, people who do, uh, you know, march to be their own drummer, have have a place to go that isn't necessarily uh, like 
some of the big three, you know, Bay Area, Los Angeles, Brooklyn. It gives us a little bit more options without the constrictions that may come with other areas. So Right. And allows us to carve out weird little enclaves too, which makes it, you know, all the more interesting because it's yeah. you get to you get to find stuff and there's something really exciting about that rather than already having maybe the reputation. Can I briefly poke the both of you about the Sacramento coffee community? If you wanna toot the horn of that and or just talk about your experience being in the trenches of that. Yeah, sure. So um, Mason's probably been in the coffee industry in Sacramento longer than I have. Uh, I first met Mason in, uh, it was probably 2014, late 2014, early 2015, probably. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I had been a part of the coffee community in, in Sacramento since around that time. And the coffee community in Sacramento is whenever I first got here in 2011 was a little bit um, elitist in some extents, you know, coffee shops, cafes are kind of supposed to be like the great uniter of the world, very much in the same way that, uh, that bars are where it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, this is the place where you gather. And with specialty coffee, which focuses on certain aspects of coffee and presenting coffee that really helps to highlight the hard work of indigenous people from all over the globe and usually in very impoverished parts of the world, there's a level of exclusivity that happened was happening in cafes and late you know, 2007 through 2012 that wasn't that great. And so I feel like I came into especially coffee world at a great time where there was more inclusion and there was a lot more effort to represent people who weren't white cis men in the coffee industry. And it was a place that, or it's an industry that allows people like myself and people like Mason to have this flexibility of doing something that has like this kind of creative craft to it and get paid for it while also having more time to pursue other things. Like, I don't think that uh, I, if I were, say, of course I could wait tables. I, I did that for a long, long time. But it, you know, it's it ends up being a very repetitive and not a very uh, intellectually engaging pursuit at the end of the day. Whereas with coffee, you have the same flexibility and the same kind of levels of interaction with the general public, but at the same time, you have this opportunity to deal with like this meticulous science that you can go as deep into it as you want. You can go into the mathematics element of it. You can go into the physics and the chemistry, or uh, it, or you can deal with the visual aspect of latte art and presentation and all these other like psychological things that help make great coffee even better while also spending, you know, your other parts of the week working on whatever other pursuits that you have. And I feel like that's one reason why so many people in the coffee community wind up also being artists or photographers or vocalists or writers or whatever, just because there's, they're so kind of intertwined in so many different respects. Right. And especially with like third wave coffee and, and, and the sort of independent, you know, specialty boutique coffee that Chris and I have both worked in, there's that sense of like, there's this desire to find a new way to do everything, right? Every cafe has their own approach and every owner, most of them came from other cafes and they didn't care for something. And so they set out and do it their way. And so there's this constant sense in every corner of like a pursuit for um, innovation, right? And, and I think that that is really exciting for a lot of us that are looking for the flexibility to do things a little differently and, 
and to approach things differently and to um, sort of have every day be some level of problem solving, which is really what working on a espresso bar is, right? So yeah, it it I think I think that's totally right. Like it it just tends to attract us because it has there is so much overlap with coffee and you know other creative pursuits. Um, plus, our customers are all people like us too. Or a lot of them are. Um, <laughs> you get you get a lot of people who are in college um, coming through and who are working artists and who work in galleries and stuff. So you, you're just in this constant like interaction with, um, with people who at least share similar interests. Yeah, I agree. So how did that step then take you to Sac City College and the journalism that you do today? Well, as much as I love working in coffee, uh, it's not an industry that is really financially viable. Um, much like Mason was saying, it, when somebody steps out and makes their own, you know, starts their own cafe, it's not because they're trying to make a quick buck. It's because it's something that they're passionate about. But at the same time, with coffee, there's a ceiling and there's only so many paths forward. And um, I kind of started feeling as though I kind of hit that ceiling uh, relatively early on as far as like what my personal interests were um, and still retaining that element of the creative craft of coffee. And so I started really taking stock of my own personal values and how I can continue to utilize those to not only continue to make myself happy, but also make sure I can support my family. And there's a, an online magazine in Sacramento that I started writing for very early on doing food journalism. So I would uh, collaborate with photographers and cover mostly food service uh, companies in the greater Sacramento area. And it was a whole lot of fun, but it was a completely volunteer base. And it was one of those things where, in hindsight, it wasn't necessarily the best for me because it was a company, the magazine was a company that was kind of built on taking advantage of people who are trying to get exposure, which is... Uh, ultimately, I think it's kind of a universal problem in the art world. Where it's, it's like, everywhere. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I would constantly go visit the editor and he's like, hey, I love what you're doing for us. Uh, if you could just give us one more article, then we can start paying you. And I was like, cool. Yeah, sure. Um, but I got, uh, I eventually got sick and I had this uh, kind of unexplained neurological condition that really, really impacted my uh, cognitive function. And so writing became very, very difficult for me. And I start, kind of started having to just take stock of just like, you know, what does the future look like for me? And um, so I eventually stopped writing for about two years. And as I started to slowly get better and continue to look at my values and, you know, at the end of the day, I'd much, I'd much rather live in poverty and be happy than live in luxury and be miserable. So I, I imagine this is a little bit universal, but when somebody gets sick and I mean like really, really sick and they get better, there's always this fear that there's going to be a relapse. At least there was for me. Um, and my illness, one of the biggest things was brain fog and uh, aphasia where like I knew what I wanted to say, but I just couldn't say the things and it was such a really weird experience and I felt as though 
writing could have could be taken from me at any moment in time. And so I started pursuing some more typical office type work. And I eventually got to the point where I was in the running for a position at the FBI as an intelligence analyst, which is something I never thought in the world that I would say. Um, I had this idea of like truth, justice, these certain like values that were just really important to me. And while I never really was enamored by the idea of working in law enforcement or being in the military, the idea that I could use my intellect to pursue integrity and uh, justice. It was just like, I was just enamored with it. And so I spent about a year and a half going through this huge, long process. And of course, during that year and a half, I got better and better. I started writing more. I started doing more things. And then one of the last steps in the process was a polygraph test, which is not something I would suggest anybody do for fun. It was this hands down the most stressful thing I have ever, ever done. And I failed. Failed my polygraph for reasons that are to this day are kind of unknown to me. Not to say I know there's a lot of issues with the polygraph po- process itself, but I don't blame that. I, ultimately, I just think you know what? There's better things I could be doing with my time. <laughs> are they asking you? Will you betray the U.S. government? Honestly, yes. Yeah, okay. it was kind of like you know. Um, so it's like a top secret security clearance kind of position, and every position in the United States that goes through that process you have to take a polygraph and with the fbi the statistics are about 50 percent fail the polygraph and you know a lot of the questions is like do you have any contacts with known domestic terror organizations and all this other stuff it's it's you know super weird and even though i know the answer is no you're nervous i i know a couple anarchists like mason you know like (laughs) but you know you're strapped into this chair You've got something around your chest to monitor your breathing. You have something under your seat to measure whether or not you're fidgeting. It's just you're put under a microscope. And I was like, oh, this is, yeah, it was one of the most stressful things. And when I got word that I had failed, you know, that was a year and a half of my life kind of put down the drain. And at this point, I I had already, I had been a high school or a middle school English teacher. That didn't pan out. I was all set to eventually teach college. I went to grad school a little bit and realized that, you know, English professor is a dime a dozen. And so I was like, nope, not going to do that. And then this FBI thing, that didn't work out. And so it gets depressing, you know, as a, especially as somebody who I consider myself an artist, but I had never really tried to pursue that as a vocation. Being an artist comes with, you have to be able to except rejection. And I, I just hadn't built up that thick skin yet. And so, oh, it hit me so hard. And eventually what I did is I, I was like, okay, what brought me to wanting to join law enforcement, join the FBI? Well, let me take stock of all these things. And is there any other options available to me? And so truth, justice, integrity, fighting for somebody else. And then I was like, well, I also enjoy writing. And I feel like at that point I was, my health was at a moment or I was at a point where I felt like I could continue doing that again. And so I decided to pick up journalism. Uh, I initially wanted to apply because I already had my bachelor's. I was like, I'm, I'm just going to go to grad school. I'm just going to go and do it. But at the same time, I, I had already paid off all my student debt. And so I was like, well, let me, let me slow down. Let me, <laughs> let me join a community college. Let me make sure this is something that, because it's very easy to romanticize about jobs, romanticize about industries. I did the same thing with uh, 
with the coffee industry. I had these romantic ideas of what it is and what it involved. I didn't know that you'd be spending 60% of your time washing dishes, but there it was. So I joined, so I enrolled at uh, Sacramento City College, and I wound up just absolutely loving it. I'm very, very fortunate that uh, Jan Haig and Randy Allen are the uh, two advisors there for the Express, who just have an unbelievable wealth of experience between the two of them. Uh, and I was surprised at how easily writing for a journalistic aspect came to me just because it was a lot of the same elements that made me fall in love with teaching English in the first place. And yeah, it's, it's been fantastic so far. You know, community colleges really don't get the respect that they deserve because I agree, you know, so often like, especially in the arts, there are just amazing people working there who have this really amazing experience. And, you know, they also have very much other careers a lot of the time too, where yeah. they're, they're not, their entire life is not being a college professor at, at wherever. So I I feel like it allows them maybe having, having seen a little bit of the other side of, of college teaching, have, you know, that sort of alignment allows them to have the space to really care about teaching in a, in a way that doesn't happen always if you say have tenure yeah because along with that too is all of the administrative work that college professors have to do i'm going through my own real like is this really what i want to do do i really <laughs> want to go teach at a university that will make me do 90 hours of administrative work a month i don't know that's why you just become do administrative work for corporate people so they pay you just to push those cookies yeah <laughs> So something that you and I were talking about, Christopher, that I found really interesting and that I think applies so beautifully to the podcast was, is journalism an art, right? And you were talking yeah. about that question and you, you phrased it interestingly, like um, just your insecurity about whether or not journalism is an art. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, uh, you know, like kind of alluding to the conversation that we had uh, off air is just like, that's kind of the ultimate question. Um, you know, there are philosophers who've been talking about this for a long, long time. It's just, you know, what what is art? What defines art? And, you know, like what separates, let's say, journalism or, you know, like something published in the New York Times uh, from something like Of Mice and Men or, you know, what separates a great journalist from Leo Tolstoy? It's something that uh, Mason mentioned a couple episodes back is like ultimately whenever you create a piece of anything you know you send it out into the world and it's up to the audience to kind of do with it what they will it then is out of your hands and belongs to them and so in that sense uh, journalism is very much in the same way but instead of telling your own story instead of Steinbeck telling you know his imagined story a journalist is telling somebody else's story or um, you know occasionally you'll have personal uh, pieces and opinion pieces, but it still is, you know, an expression of of something internal, whether it's the journalist's thoughts or somebody else's, and uh, disseminated among, amongst the masses for, for them to enjoy, you know, hopefully. And especially the kind of writing I do, I mostly do feature pieces. Uh, feature pieces are more like magazine style, long form, more narrative driven, and it allows me to kind of tap into that uh, kind of novelistic element of the journalism world that may not necessarily be present in quote-unquote breaking news. 
And my qualm is like, it's just like, am I an artist? Uh, especially because right now I'm, I'm a student. Uh, I have had pieces published. I've, but at the same time, I'm not getting paid. Um, mostly because I haven't pursued that element yet. I, I'm fairly positive I can, but it's, it's not something that I have been able to dedicate the time to. Um, it's also part of the reason why I'm going to community college right now. But at the same time, it's just like, when does, where's that line between a hobbyist and a professional? You know, like, where, where's the defining, where's the divide between somebody who writes news pieces and when did they become a journalist? Or when does somebody take photos and when are they a photographer? There is no answer. And that's part of the difficulty of it. It's, you know, even I know plenty of people who bless their hearts, they, they might get paid for, for doing something with some artistic endeavor, but they may not be considered an artist because their talent doesn't meet a certain threshold. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. Well, and then there are people who don't consider themselves artists and their output is very much art. Yeah. Know, or, or well, if not viewed right now is, um, in the future ends up viewed that way, you know, yeah. Emily Dickinson, prime example. Yeah, totally. Almost any news photographer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and, and then of course there's that, like, you know, I think about Hunter S. Thompson, who was very much a journalist and, and I think a lot of ways a very res respectable journalist. He worked very hard. He was a madman, but he also like even his most fanciful books were really thorough pieces of journalism in this weird, weird way. And there's no question that you know his work is literature and not. Um, but I think that comes with that hindsight too. Yeah, I don't know that he'd call himself an artist. He might. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody will send me a, a link to a, a quote from him. Yeah. When they of hear course this. he said he was an artist. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. But, right, that that line that you're kind of delineating between hobbyist and paid professional is just a systemic problem, right? In most industries, but especially in art, because we're expected to be good enough or devote enough time to our craft, not get paid for it, and then... Yeah paid for it hopefully maybe one day yeah and you know like i i play guitar like mason and i were in a band for a little bit but i wouldn't necessarily yeah um i wouldn't necessarily call us or i wouldn't call myself a musician even though i've you know hung out in mason's living room and, and play guitar with them you know <laughs> but i feel like at the same time it's also you know there's there's no governing body to, to make those decisions on our behalf. And even then, you know, if we, if that was the case, there'd be a whole slew of people saying, fuck that government body. Like I'm an artist. So, <laughs> so yeah, I guess if somebody wants to be an artist, call yourself an artist, but we will judge you if you're terrible. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, face, face the, uh, the jury of your peers and face the consequences. And, and what's more artistic than that then? Facing the jury of your peers. <laughs> As you um, embark on, on this new pursuit, do you have any sense of what your goal is for journalism? Do you have, are you, are you looking for something specific or are you still just sort of feeling it out and um, building that foundation to 
put whatever you find on top of it? I'd say kind of both. Um, I'm really fortunate that I am studying to be a journalist at this moment in time. Uh, you know, while we're talking about this, we are on, you know, there's a presidential election less than 10 days away. And we spent the summer with, uh, you know, viewing protests for racial justice. And uh, we have a virus that is, you know, ravaging our country and the world and ruining economies. And ultimately, these are all elements where, yes, they have their own stories to tell. But then within that are this microcosm of individual people who have their own stories to tell of how they are subsisting and interacting with one another or not uh, within all these things that are thrown at them. And while journalism in and of itself has been a part of our lives since we were able to disseminate information to each other, I feel like right now it's as vital as ever to have quote-unquote, real journalists who are utilizing this information, spreading information without a specific agenda attached to it, without trying to stoke fears and without trying to uh, influence. And I, uh, right now, I'm really focused on telling other people's stories. Most of my work deals with the Sacramento uh, City College uh, bubble, uh, mostly because that's what our paper covers. But um, ultimately, I want to, because I am, I'm a, you know, a cis white man, 35, and I don't have a lot of the experiences that the rest of the world does. And while I like to see myself as a very open-minded individual, at the same time, I still have elements of my own unintentional biases that prevent me from looking at the world through these different lenses. And I feel like that's a place where journalism is very, very powerful. And so ultimately I want to pursue that avenue, um, not only for me, but also to help get these stories of people who are marginalized, people who are like under the boot of um, oppression, whether it's because of their race, their uh, ethnicity, their gender, their uh, gender identity, or their uh, their place in this uh, capitalist financial system, to get their stories and their struggles told to a wider world. Because ultimately, something that I've learned is that things on the margins kind of always come to the center uh, in some way, shape, or form, uh, whether the people who are at the center want it or not. Uh, this is how we, uh, you know, manage the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. This is how we manage the anti-war movements. This is how we deal with gender equality and uh, marriage rights for same-sex couples. Um, it's something where people make enough noise and people get the word out, and then ultimately it winds up becoming a part of that central narrative of our lives. And while I sit very, very comfortably in that center and sit high on this pedestal, I feel like I can utilize these skills to bring those margins closer to the, to the rest of the world and let those stories be known. So that was actually something I was going to ask you about is how do you kind of manage amplifying voices, right? That need to be amplified. Um, 
but kind of acknowledge and deal with your own biases conscious of or you're not conscious of and kind of how you navigate all of that to ensure the stories are being told in the right light. That is an excellent question. And it's definitely easier said than done. What you what we don't see a lot today in journalism is the journalist removing themselves from the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, my goal is that when somebody reads one of my pieces, or as an editor, if they read one of my staff writers' pieces, they the reader should not have any idea who that journalist is. The subjects in that story should be co- the complete focus of the story. And they should be the ones saying everything. And so being aware of opinionated language, being aware of personal pronouns like I and me and my, and omitting those from a piece is vitally important to make sure all that focus turns toward the subject. But at the same time, because I'm a white male and because others on my editorial staff are also uh, they're white or they're male or they fit into this, uh, you know, kind of very uh, majority framework, we have to be mindful that of the kinds of stories that we are covering. And not necessarily going out of our way, but making sure that we're putting extra emphasis on having story ideas that cross our desk, that they are inclusive or pointing towards details that are important to people who don't look like us making sure that we are focusing on, for instance, at City College, how is City College implementing Campaign Zero on campus to reduce uh, police violence and making sure that black students feel safer on campus? Even though we have uh, an all-white editorial staff, it's an important story, and we want to make sure that that is talked about. Um, But also at the same time, making sure that when we ask questions of our sources, that we are giving them the opportunity and the space to tell their stories and then crafting them in such a way that it creates a more holistic picture of who that person is, but all, you know, including their race and including their sexual identity and their gender and everything else, but also making sure that that isn't like the sole focus. We also want to make sure that we're portraying these people as people and not just a mouthpiece for whatever section of the community that they may be speaking for at that moment. Right. That's always the, one of the biggest challenges of representation is, is that sort of slippery slope into tokenization. You know, I'm, I'm talking to this person who is of this identity because they are this person of this identity rather than they are a person with experience. And, and I imagine that it's incredibly difficult to sort of navigate that space between like, their personal identity, which is super important, and also just the fact that they are a person. And yeah. Has your experience as an editor particularly, have you seen anything uh, more recently that's that's really shaped your thinking on that? Um, yes. Um, there's actually a piece that I, that I wrote about, um, there's a, there's a organization in Sacramento called Sacramento Neighbor, who's focus is on providing mutual aid for the unhoused in Sacramento. And it was started by a football coach at Sacramento City College who for a long time, as a black man, got really tied into 
the protests in 2014 surrounding the killings of Michael Brown. And, uh, but he also grew up with a father who was a Black Panther. And so he told me, you know, he was always so closely identified with his race and how that impacted not only the way he perceived the world, but also how the world perceived him. And there are these statistics of how homelessness drastically affects men and women of color much more so than it does other other populations. And so that is something I wanted really, really, really wanted to include in my piece because it felt as though it was so vital to his identity and why he started Sacramento Neighbor. And especially considering Sacramento Neighbor is so closely tied to the Panthers 10-step platform. And it was something that it just didn't fit. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I worked with my editors, working that information in for a Sacramento City College student to be able to grasp was just not on their level. Um, And I think that perhaps if we had a different editorial staff or perhaps if we had a different uh, readership, I would have been able to tell that element of a story better, but I also feel like I did him a little bit of a disservice by not including that. Um, and it's it's difficult making making those kind of calls in an editorial uh, in an editorial role because at the end of the day, you're serving your reader. And if to serve the reader and give this guy's background, you have to also go into the background of the Black Panthers and you have to go into the background of this. And um, if it doesn't work, then it, if they're not going to read it anyway, then it's not going to, they're not going to be able to get into the great good that he's doing at that moment in time. And so it's, it's, it's difficult trying to find that balance of trying to make sure that we are doing right especially me, it's, it's hard to make sure that I'm doing right by sources that have those kinds of stories where being on the margins is so important to them at sh- in shaping their story and their identity and then not being able to adequately share their story with that specific audience that the piece is being published for when it's something that everybody should know and everybody should should be able to experience. But yeah, that's a something I was thinking about is that, you know, every artistic medium has its constraints. Um, you know, photo- photography, singing, violin, you know, you have the tools that you have and you have the output that you're looking for. And you can't, while there are certain boundaries that can be pushed and shifted, ultimately that's how we move and we grow in the artistic community at the same time. I feel like with journalism, they're, the box is a little bit smaller. And that could be because of your editor. It could just be because of the English language, or it could be because if you don't tell it in this certain way, it's not going to get published in general. Um, I feel like journalism can have some more hurdles that need to be overcome than some other artistic mediums, which is something that I'm still kind of struggling with at this moment in time. But at the same time, it maybe, and this happens in every medium too, it opens a space for um, 
your own personal work or for work that exists outside of a professional pursuit, whether or not you consider the professional pursuit art, even just different projects, right? Yeah. Um, And you can't do it with everything, but those details that are like, well, I can't put this in the story or I can't put this in this photo series or this is not the way that I can play this piece, they become the, the sort of seeds of the other work that you end up doing, I think. Yeah. And with that piece, like, for instance, it may not, what I was writing may not have worked for the Express, but what is great is that there is some publication out there, whether they're Sacramento-based, California-based, or even broader, where it could work. And that's also kind of the beauty of of journalism, because especially because so much of it is freelance-based, is that there's still plenty more opportunities for me to share that story with others, and especially with my staff writers as they bring stuff across to me that may not necessarily work for our readers. They can still change it and work stuff around and kind of mold it into this piece that may wind up working great for Comstocks or work great for like an independent publication that focuses on the Black Lives Matter movement or something along those lines that still allows them to tell these parts of of their story. And that's one thing that I, I feel like is really great about being in journalism at this time is that we're at this peak of engagement that allows for us as journalists to push the envelope. And if we want to tell a story badly enough, there is somebody out there that will allow us to do it. Yeah. And, but with that engagement, right, is there's that double-edged sword of, um, especially with social media is just the immediacy of response and like platforms and abuses of power. And I, I like, you know, the beats of journalism that I like to follow the most are kind of like the food and music worlds. And I can't help think of things like, um, when Lana Del Rey came out with her last album, which got heralded as the ungreatest thing of all time. Oh my gosh. She's just like Bruce Springsteen, yada, 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 whatever. But you know, everyone was like, (laughs) Oh, she's great again. And we'll ignore the other stuff. And Ann Powers, who is a, remarkably well-respected music journalist wrote of mostly um i'd say positive and appreciative piece about her but lana was not pleased with it and went on this rant about how yada 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 yada, this is terrible biased journalism yada yada and it her sticking point had to do with ann powers acknowledging especially on the onset of lana del rey's career this like concept of a persona she's like i've never And anyone with two eyes and a brain can look at what she's done and said, no. So, (laughs) but, you know, with being a well-respected, very memed, very aesthetic artist comes a platform and your words have power. And in that, in that her response was also like people tying in like, well, yeah, people just shouldn't be critical of artists. So like, so right, this all just kind of snowballs into people with, power that want to use journalism for their gain and or their exposure kind of abusing it and or you know not liking it when it doesn't kind of neatly fit into what they want um (laughs) this long rant to go to say is has this something that you've experienced as a writer yourself or as someone who's you know observed the journalism world everybody uh Everybody has an opinion. Um, 
And there, that's kind of uh, one of the issues with being in journalism at this point in time is that, you know, kind of going back to our conversation earlier is that, you know, what defines a journalist? And ultimately, anybody can consider th themselves a journalist as long as they put, you know, write something and put it on a website and put it out there in the world. And there's so many tools that make it so easy for somebody to, quote unquote, be public. And something, it's, something that I'm struggling with right now is that, you know, I have a very, very conservative family and, you know, that only lists, all they absorb is propaganda and things that may be run counter to their own personal narratives. And while somebody like Ann Powers, you know, like while she may be sharing an opinion, ultimately when you have a, a certain level of media literacy, you know, you're able to look at somebody like that and take scope of their body of work and be like, okay, this person, yes, it's their opinion, but at the same time, based on what they've produced, they kind of have a little bit more authority than some random person with no profile picture on Twitter. So I think that with with journalism, especially, I mean, of course, with, in the artistic world in general, you're not going to please everybody. And if you're in the artistic world trying to do that, then you're not going to get very far. Um, and... I think that, you know, in that instance, Lana Del Rey probably owes a, a debt of gratitude to Ann Powers because, you know, like, by opening up that can of worms, it probably gave people the opportunity to be more voraciously in Lana Del Rey's corner. And I don't think maybe she doesn't realize that, that maybe she might have sold more records because of that or sold more concert tickets or whatever. But um, for journalists, we definitely deal with that all the time. Um, you know, especially as we get into writing about politics or personal opinions, um, there's always going to be, yeah, there's the echo chamber, but then if I write a factually based piece on the coronavirus or, uh, the election or, uh, something else, there's going to be a 40% of the people in the in the United States, we're going to look at that and call it fake news, even though it's, even though it may be just reorganizing factual information in a, in a way that's more digestible. And that is, I think, one of the biggest hurdles right now in the world of journalism is uh, this idea that people get to kind of pick and choose the facts that they have, but then also... By that same token, you also have such a huge section of the journalistic world that is focused on portraying facts or portraying information in a way that it seems factual, it appears factual, but has is tainted in some way so that it can't be trusted. And with the proliferation of social media or the proliferation of this kind of journalism on social media, it kind of has created this landscape where more and more people out there don't have the media literacy needed to have an informed outlook on the world, which puts journalists under fire much in the same way, you know, like, you know, you look at a Jackson Pollock painting and there's so many people out there who are just like, what the fuck is this? Like my, <laughs> my four-year-old could do this. And then you have the other side of the coin of people who may be more uh, enlightened at, uh, as to 
what constitutes art. They may have taken art history courses, so they may have an MFA or whatever, and they can look at that and say, okay, this is why it holds ground. This is why he's continued to be a namesake. This is why this is important. And it's very, very much in the same with journalism. You, know, you have an uninformed base that is making it so that journalists' lives can be very, very hard when they're just trying to tell the world what somebody else said. Right, the adage that everyone is a pundit now. Oh, yeah. The The thing that interests me is, you know, how many times a week I'm asked by somebody in some form, like, well, what do you think about everybody being a photographer now? You know, are you, is there really such thing as a photographer now that everybody has a camera? And it it, it touches on all of the sort of same issues, right? That like, yeah, everybody has a camera and everybody can take a picture and they can even take a nice picture, but not everybody can photograph. Right. And, and there's all of that knowledge that kind of goes with that. The difference being a thing that journalism has that I don't think a lot of arts have, right? Like it has, it has that, the issue with amateurism of like people who don't appreciate the knowledge base and, and the experience that, that need to go into it. But other art forms don't have people with credentials and with backing actively making anti-art. You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, it's fascinating to me. And it makes me like have that much more respect for folks like you who are actively pursuing journalism right now, because I cannot imagine, right. (laughs) On any level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not easy, but at the same time, like nothing worth doing is ever easy. So. And, And what a time to start doing it. Yay, the world's falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> well, where can people find you? So uh, I'm on social media, and I also have a uh, portfolio. Uh, my portfolio can be found at C.S. McNeil. That's dot com, And I am on social media at by C.S. McNeil on most platforms. And we'll put links to that in the show notes. Well, thanks for coming on, Chris. It was really good to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me. I really, really enjoyed talking to you all. Thank you so much. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?